Greetings from the Cosmic Horror. The stars are right once again, and the great old ones allow us to talk about for 30 plus minutes H.P. Lovecraft, the horror writer who is a genre unto himself. I'm your cosmic host, Mark Griffin, executor of the Lovecraft Estate on Yagov, joined in by two from the material world, David Guffey, a professor at Mispatong University, and Richard Wilson, who has just come back from somewhere far below. Today's guest is Stefan Jamanowitz, an editor, critic, author, and whose main focus of interest is horror and supernatural fiction. He's published many reviews in the Crypt of Cthulhu and has co-edited a fanzine called Necrophile, the review of horror fiction. And before we go any further, how did you pronounce your name? <laughs> okay. I understand you've been mispronounced by the best people in the world, though. Yeah. I, you know, if Neil Gaiman wants to, I, I basically said to Neil, I'm as honored to be named a nominee for the award that you are naming my name for as I am for you to mispronounce it. Um, so the name is Stefan, not Stefan. Everybody thinks the accent should be on the second syllable because the last name, everybody thinks the name should be exotic. And the American pronunciation of that ghastly last name, which makes me Stefan the Unspeakable or Stefan the Unpronounceable, is Jamanowitz. Um, for a bonus question at the end of this meeting, I'll test people to see if they want to try the Polish pronunciation. Okay. No, okay. We'll, we'll, that sounds challenging. Yeah, we'll, we'll see about that. I guess I'm stepping the unspeakable or the unpronounceable is a very Lovecraftian vibe to it. So I guess it'll fit here. Yes. <laughs> and, um, and of course, uh, the main reason you're here is to talk about a, um, a writer named Robert Barber Johnson. Uh, he's not that well known. So how did you find out about him? Okay, well, I probably found out about Robert Barber Johnson the same way that most other people with interest in Lovecraft found out about him. Um, when I was a teenager, um, I first read a book by Bob Weinberg, the eminent pulp collector, and at one time, one of the co-owners of the copyright to Weird Tales magazine. Um, the name of the book was, I call it Weird Tales 50, but it was WT50. It was published in 1973, 50th anniversary of the launch of Weird Tales in 1923. And in it, Bob had included a bunch of essays by living writers um, who had contributed to Weird Tales in their lifetime. And one of them was this guy named Robert Barber Johnson. And Johnson had interesting things to say about his infatuation with the work of H.P. Lovecraft, stories that he had written in homage to H.P. Lovecraft having actually gotten, if you can believe this, for his first published story, a fan letter from H.P. Lovecraft praising his work. <clears throat> and the story title that came up uh, in the essay, and Bob wrote about it in a couple of places in the book, was this story called Far Below. Now, again, we're talking 1973, uh, we do not, we did not at that time have the endless archives and repositories 
of weird tales and weird fiction in general from the pulp era like we have now. Um, and I was intrigued by the story because all of the accolades that it seemed to have earned, uh, including the claim by Dorothy McElwraith, who was the editor of Weird Tales from 1940 until its death in 1954, she claimed that a poll of Weird Tales readers voted that story to be the most popular story that had ever appeared in Weird Tales. Now I'm looking at the 32 or 31 plus year legacy of Weird Tales and I thought to myself, wow, uh, that's a pretty hot ticket. Um, of course, nobody ever has has really revealed what Dorothy McElwraith's um, standard was, um, where this poll was conducted, uh, where the comments came in from readers, but I didn't care. It sounded good. It was touted as an homage to H.P. Lovecraft's fiction, in particular, his story, Pickman's Model, and Again, I read this essay by Robert Barber Johnson in Bob Weinberg's Weird Tales 50. About the same time, Bob put together a collection of stories from Weird Tales called Far Below, and I think the subtitle was Far Below and Other Horrors. It was published by FAX Editions, which at the time seemed to have a, an affiliation with the old Starmont House imprint. And so I said, well, you know, kismet. Um, I wanted to read this story. Bob has anthologized this story in this book. And so I ran out, got a copy. I should say, actually, I, I you know, Bob was a mail order book dealer at the time who coincidentally happened to be carrying a copy of Far Below and Other Horrors. I got the book from Bob. I read the story. I was sufficiently blown away by it. And that piqued my interest in Johnson's work from that point on. I knew very little else outside of what Johnson had stated in his essay he had written for Weird Tales. We didn't have a lot of the bibliographic sources ready to hand right now that we have today. So I had, you know, no idea. Did this guy contribute 20 stories to Weird Tales, 30 stories to Weird Tales? Was he second only or third only to August Derleth and Seabury Quinn for their work? Well, you know, I found out it was a pretty modest number of stories, five or six. Um, if you read between the lines of Johnson's essay, which he expanded later on, um, he had a kind of weird love-hate relationship with Weird Tales. Um, he was of the <laughs> he was of the opinion that Farnsworth Wright didn't like him, even though Wright was accepting stories from him, um, but sending kind of curmudgeonly uh, acceptance letters saying he would accept the story, but it was going to need to be seriously edited. And then uh, uh, my favorite one, and again, you have no idea whether this is apocryphal or, or true, but he claimed that Farnsworth Wright constantly, months after he agreed to publish the story, would send him a follow-up letter saying he forgot to include a page of his manuscript. 
And this went, this happened a couple of times on stories and Johnson submitted that he actually had friends helping him to collate his manuscripts before he mailed them off to Weird Tales and it just wasn't true. Uh, in any event, I digress. Um, it turned out that Johnson had a number of pretty good, pretty solid stories in Weird Tales, several of them redolent of the work of H.P. Lovecraft. And um, where possible, I sought them out. Um, I was very fortunate in that um, when I started working with Bob Weinberg and Marty Greenberg um, about 15 years after I had first run across Far Below, um, we were putting together compilations of stories from Weird Tales. And we did one book called Weird Vampire Tales, which was an assemblage of stories from a variety of different pulp magazines, uh, not just Weird Tales, Strange Tales, um, you know, some of the other prevalent pulp magazines at the time. And Johnson had a really kind of cool vampire story called The Silver Coffin. And we picked that story up for Weird Vampire Tales. Um, I believe when we did our book, 100 Wild Little Weird Tales, which was a collection of 100 short, short stories that we picked up at least one of Johnson's stories for that. So what it comes down to is the praise for Far Below, the Lovecraft connection to Far Below, and my burgeoning interest in weird tales really kind of set me on track to look up Johnson's work when I ran across it, when I could find it, um, to the extent that last year, uh, so th this is always kind of a bit of surprise to me. Um, there are a number of pulp authors out there who, wrote significant stories or have a commendable body of work and in their lifetime or over the span of what decades after really their heyday had passed nobody thought to collect their stories and last year I was in or two years ago I was in conversation with S.T. Joshi um, actually this began many many years ago um, ST was very keen on putting together a compilation of Johnson's weird fiction. Um, and I stress his weird fiction because we can get into other aspects of Johnson's work. Um, and there weren't that many, but there were enough with essays that Johnson had written to put together a pretty solid compilation of his writing to share with readers, uh, it came out, it is Far Below and Other Weird Stories. We by, uh, Yeah, <laughs> you got one as well. Okay, by uh, by Joe Maury's Weird House Press. Um, I recommend it highly to people. I'm not a shill for Weird House. Um, but it is the first full compilation of Robert Barber Johnson's weird fiction. Um, and it collects everything of his from Weird Tales 
and a couple of pieces that he wrote later on uh, post Weird Tales after the magazine had folded, at least one or two of which might have been stories that he had originally intended for Weird Tales, uh, but of course no longer had a market for. Um, and in fact, he's got an interesting essay in this book written around that time called Can We Live Without Fantasy Fiction, which was, it's worth reading because it's sort of an elegy to the passing of Weird Tales and to the idea that between Weird Tales passing in 1954 and maybe for about another decade, there was almost no magazine out on the newsstands in which you could find weird fiction, uh, unless it was something like the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, where you are fitting that around fantasy and science fiction stories, and the amount of weird fiction in the magazine was pretty slim. Um, it really wasn't until the mid-60s when Doc Lowndes launched the health knowledge line of the magazine of horror and startling mystery stories, predominantly reprinting stories from Weird Tales, that you had a new weird fiction market, and not surprisingly, several of Robert Barber Johnson's last published stories did appear in those magazines, and they are also collected in this book. Now, I think I've probably gone much farther afield than your initial question of what got me interested in Johnson's work. No, it's okay. We'll forgive you. <laughs> no, that's a great explanation. Yeah, the uh, uh, I guess one of our big interests, you know, is that he's from ho nearby Hopkinsville, Kentucky, right? And um, he was he was born there, and then later moved to Louisville, and he's supposed to have, like have um, saw his first Weird Tale magazine there. Yes, he does purport that he saw the first issue of Weird Tales on the newsstands, bought it. Um, <laughs> had problems with the look of the cover of the magazine, as did we all, or as did anybody who has ever seen the first issue of Weird Tales, because he thought it was one of the ugliest covers he had ever seen. But basically what he said was, you turned that cover, you started diving into the contents, and he knew he, had a, he was gonna have a lifelong infatuation with the magazine. Um, he rightly calls it the first magazine exclusively devoted to weird fiction. Really, it was. Um, you can point to other magazines that had significant weird content at the time, uh, but Weird Tales was the real McCoy. Um, and for much of its life, it really was the only place that you could go to for weird fiction. There were some competitors, but at the very beginning and the very end of his life, there uh, were not that many. From Louisville, I believe he said he moved down to Louisiana, and then suddenly he was not seeing Weird Tales at the newsstand. Part of the reason was because Weird Tales in its first two years was having a lot of printing issues, format issues. The magazine was not catching on with the public. Uh, the editor and publisher were doing everything that they could to boost circulation, get the magazine popular. And they went from the standard pulp size format. This is where pulp nerdery really, this is where it comes in guys, get ready. Um, this is when 
they converted the magazine from a standard pulp size magazine that sat with all the other pulp magazines being published at the time to a bedsheet size. Bedsheet sizes always being a bit unwieldy um, because what else was being published in bedsheet size at the time? Saturday Evening Post, Collier's. They ain't going to stock that magazine next to Saturday Evening Post and Collier's, trust me. So in any event, Johnson retained his interest, sought the magazine out wherever he could. Um, he did move around quite a bit. Um, he wound up moving out to the West Coast. Um, and it sounds as though he may not have seen and read every issue, but he did regularly read the magazine. Um, you know, I think a subscription at the time was probably out of the question because, again, he was moving around all over the place. Johnson's life is kind of interesting. Uh, there are certain aspects of it in which you could say he was a self-invented man. Uh, there's a certain amount of uncertainty about his actual birth year, um, some other aspects of his biography. So if he was born in 1907, then when he was 16 years old, that would have been when the first issue of Weird Tales came out. And he claims that he wrote stories and sent them off to Edward Baird, who was, or Edwin Baird, which, who was the editor of the magazine at the time, hoping to break in, hoping to enter this field of weird fiction that he always wanted to be a member of. Baird did not accept those submissions, but apparently wrote him encouraging letters. Uh, so in a way, Baird helped to plant the seed for some of the later work that uh, Johnson did get published in the magazine. Johnson actually says he was eternally grateful that Baird didn't accept those stories because looking back on them, he kind of cringed at how juvenile they were and he said he would have been embarrassed had they shown up under his name. But, you know, there again, you have it. He bonded very early with Weird Tales and just could not get enough of the magazine during his lifetime. And that's where he first uh, got introduced to Lovecraft. Yes. Um, it's evident from stories that he wrote. His two, his two most, his two best known stories. He to the best of my knowledge, does not say anything specifically about when he ran across Pickman's model. Far Below is clearly an homage to that story. Uh, Lovecraft's entire idea of, you know, ghouls underground feeding on the dead. Uh, there is even a passage, as I recall, in the story where uh, ghouls emerge from underground Ton, uh, subway tunnels in Boston to feed on the corpses of people who are in train accidents. Um, I could be wrong about that. I, it's been a while since I reread the story. But Johnson took that concept and ran with it. Um, he took a Lovecraft idea, which was very interesting, and he elaborated a drama from it that was not an actual pastiche of Lovecraft at, you know, by the time Far Below appears, it's 1939, we have seen a lot of people in the Lovecraft circle um, 
trying to write in the style, in the manner of Lovecraft. <laughs> Some did it better than others. Most people did not do it that well. Johnson avoided the stylistic attempt to imitate Lovecraft, but instead said, this concept is really interesting. Let's transport it to the New York subway system. And he wrote with a sort of authenticity about it and added some new ideas in that made it clear he was writing under the influence of Lovecraft's tale, and yet he was not slavishly imitating Lovecraft. He was taking it in a new direction, and I would argue a very modern direction. There's a certain hard-boiled style to the narrative of Far Below. It is related largely as a monologue, but it's the idea of people are victims of these monsters underground, but there is an entire armed police force deputized to try to address the problem of these creatures when they emerge. And it's not surprising that that crops up in Johnson's story. And one reason why, arguably, um, it is not well known, uh, and we still don't know that much about this, but Johnson did write for some of the hard-boiled detective magazines. He wrote for Dime Detective. Um, his first published story, called The Cancer Devil, appeared in Dime Detective at the time that Dime Detective was on the newsstands at the same time that some of the more lurid horror pulps were out there. Dime Mystery, um, I believe it coincides with horror stories and terror tales. And the standard detective pulps felt that they had to compete with these horror-driven magazines. So they wanted their hard-boiled detective work gussied up with some potentially weird content. And um, if you read The Cancer Devil, it is a what we would call a shutter pulp story. It's a story that teases the reader with the concept that something horrible is going on in a hospital ward. It is clearly due to supernatural influences. And yet by the end of the story, everything is rationalized. Oh, no, 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 it's not supernatural. You know, it's a man in a rubber mask doing this, doing that. Um, you know, using science to kind of like trick people into thinking they're seeing something supernatural. Yeah, it had kind of a Scooby-Doo feel yeah, for me. Yeah, oh, definitely. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, that's a that's a trickle down from, from Anne Radcliffe and the Gothic era, but we're not going to go there. Um, but the interesting thing about that story, it did appear in Dime Detective under Johnson's name. In the article that Johnson wrote later on, sort of his memoir about writing for the pulp magazines, he says he contributed other stories to the detective pulps, and he even kind of fudges it, but says 
you know, he mentions the editor Rogers Terrell. Rogers Terrell edited horror stories and terror tales, two of the most famous Shutterpult magazines. Um, but he said he carefully concealed his byline under pseudonyms. So to the best knowledge of all of us who have dug through these magazines, the Cancer Devil is the only one we can identify as his, but it sounds like Johnson, you know, for a paycheck, for fun, did write for the detective pulps, for the weird mystery pulps. And I can't help but feel when I read far below that some of that creeps into that story because it has that sort of drive. It has the, you know, authoritativeness of somebody who says, here's a problem and we are addressing it. We can't expunge it, but we can take care of it when it happens. And I hope that doesn't demystify the story too much for people or seem a disappointment. It is still a remarkably powerful story. Um, I mentioned Far Below um, as an homage to Lovecraft's Pickman's model. Um, Johnson had a story published before that called Mice. And if you go through that story and read it, again, it is not a slavish pastiche of Lovecraft, but it is clearly modeled on Lovecraft's The Rats in the Walls, to the extent that there is even an, a passage at the climax that virtually echoes a similar passage at the climax of The Rats in the Walls. Um, you know, The Rats in the Walls had rats, you know, which are potentially scary to a lot of people. Mice had mice. Uh, so it was an homage, but it was definitely not trying to replicate exactly what Lovecraft had done in his story. Uh, I think it was also based on a French legend. I think I came across it said it was based on a, a French, le French legend of a French nobleman who, who was devoured by a horde of mice because of family curse. And he moved it over to New Orleans for the story, I think. Of no, that's probably true. Um, that's one that I had actually not heard about, uh, but I, I could believe that. Are any of Robert Barber, Barber, Barber Johnson's papers in existence? Does anybody know what happened, you know, to his, like, his manuscripts or anything? That, I don't know. It's hard to say. One thing we do know, or, or at least this is what it seems, okay, um, Johnson was an only child, at least this is what has come down to us biographically. Um, and as far as we know, he never married, so he did not have children. So we don't know about papers, we don't know about effects. The other thing that I would say is Johnson led a very peripatetic life, okay? At a certain point, and I'm not sure what the exact date is, he got a job that consumed him for a significant part of his life. He became first a press agent for traveling circuses and then an animal trainer for circuses. And this was the foundation for work that he did after his work appeared in Weird Tales, um, writing a series of circus stories 
that appeared in the, I don't want to say mainstream, but the, the general interest magazine kind of shading over into adventure blue book. He wrote 16 stories based on the traveling circus life. Um, he had another two appear in short stories magazine um, in its later incarnation, short stories, not uncoincidentally or not coincidentally, not uncoincidentally, something like that, um, was published by the same publisher as Weird Tales magazine. And then in the 1980s, he had five stories published in Mike Shane Mystery Magazine, all also based on circus themes. So anyway, I'm sorry, that's a long-winded preamble to saying Johnson probably didn't have the capacity to keep his manuscripts as best we know. Um, I know of nobody having turned them up. I know of no university archive. I honestly do not even know how it was that Bob Weinberg managed to track him down to get the essay that he wrote for Weird Tales 50, and that was later... Bob, Bob either edited it down initially or Johnson was asked to expand it later on about 10 years ago, the full length version, which appears in Far Below and other weird stories, um, appeared in Doug Ellis's uh, great magazine on Pulp Fiction uh, called Pulp Vault. Uh, so anyway, to answer, that is a long winded way to saying I have heard nothing about Johnson's papers. And part of it could be just because it's 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 funny. It's funny when you talk with writers from the era. I had the privilege of talking to some who were still around in the 70s and 80s. When writers were writing for these magazines, nobody was writing really for posterity. These were considered disposable fiction. A lot of writers didn't keep carbons. A lot of them didn't even keep issues of their magazines, uh, you know, tear sheets. Uh, you have the horrible example of uh, the great, great pulp writer and Weird Tales contributor, Hugh B. Cave, who actually did hold on to copies of the magazines that his work appeared in and tear sheets, kept them in a shed out back, shed burned down. So anyway, a lot of these guys just were not thinking, what can I do with my effects? How can I, where can I contribute my legacy? A lot of them did not even think that there was a legacy to contribute. Now, of course, having said this publicly, what's going to happen is a week from now, Johnson's papers are going to turn up and I'm going to look like an ignoramus for having said all of this. But well, maybe be because of us. Somebody says, like, well, I know those are. You know? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I know where you live. <laughs> um, no, but I mean, but then again, you do have some writers who did contribute uh, their papers, like Robert Block. Uh, there are boxes upon boxes upon boxes of his papers that are at, I believe, the University of Wyoming. So he managed to hold on to a lot of his personal effects and donate them. Johnson, it just seems like his life did not support that sort of ambition or idea of doing it. And you never know. On the one hand, Johnson does say 
in a lot of the essays he wrote that his ambition was to be a writer. And he clearly got the bug early, contributed a lot to magazines, but another job came along. Um, he never really quite gets into what it was about the circus life that really attracted him. He does talk about how when he moved out to the West Coast, he broke out beyond the bonds of, uh, of weird fiction circles. And again, we have to accept this on his word. Um, he was part of the uh, Bay Area literary circle. He talks about how he would hobnob with William Saroyan, with John Steinbeck, other people. He did get to know Clark Ashton Smith. And actually that brings to mind something else for me to mention. Um, before interest in Johnson that we have today came about, um, there was an editor, I think he still is uh, with us, um, Randy Everts, R. Elaine Everts, who did um, Etchings and Odysseys magazine. And Everts was very diligent. Um, Etchings and Odysseys had a very strong Weird Tales interest. Everts did track people down who he knew from, you know, knew as contributors to Weird Tales. I don't think he met with Johnson. He did meet with Clark Ashton Smith's wife who knew Johnson. And Everts was pretty good about ferreting out manuscripts that, you know, no, nobody else knew of their existence. I believe he was responsible for bringing to light some unpublished manuscripts of Mary Elizabeth Councilman, another famous Weird Tales contributor. But it seems like there was nothing he managed to unearth of Johnson's work. And, you know, the question is, was Johnson private enough? It sounded like towards the end of his life, perhaps he was, um, that he wasn't interested in sharing anything. Or is it just that he wrote the stories, he sent them in, he got the paycheck, uh, kind of like being in the circuses that he traveled with. And then he just moved on to the next town. I guess he just thought like writing was like just a one-time thing. You know, he just wrote that story. It got published. He wasn't thinking about like someday may get reprinted or it may get adapted into like, you know, radio, TV or a movie, you know, stuff like that, or a video game in this day and age. You know, Right. I mean, you know, it wasn't the nature in particular for weird fiction. You know, we have examples in the pulp field of writers whose work first appeared in pulp magazines and then, you know, got into hardcover publication. Of course, you know, everybody points to Hammett and Chandler in the mystery field. Um, and then, of course, their notoriety as authors with a trade publishing profile got them Hollywood gigs. Weird fiction was always treated a little bit differently. It was always looked at askance. It was looked at as a sort of 
Well, and again, this gets interesting. It was looked at as a sort of niche field that apply, uh, uh, appealed to a specialized type of reader. Um, now, having said that, and this is again where we say, okay, Mr. Johnson, is this true or is this hyperbole? He talks about when he was on the West Coast with these various literary circles he was involved in. Well, he says two things which were kind of interesting. He said, for the circus people, they were fascinated by the fact that he wrote for Weird Tales magazine um, because, and again, you know, thank you, Todd Browning, a lot of these people were grotesques. They, you know, there were circus freaks. And he seemed to imply that they understood the fiction and they understood the appeal and they could perhaps relate to it. More interestingly, he says, the, the higher profile writers like Soroyan, like Steinbeck, were fascinated to know that he was so steeped in weird tales and its tradition because he claims they all wanted to write for the magazine. You take that with a grain of salt, that's the sort of the thing that's music to my ears when I hear it so many years after digging through issues of Weird Tales. You never know. Um, we do know that, we do, we do know now publicly that John Steinbeck has an unpublished, what they call his unpublished Weirwolf novel, which he wrote in his salad days. Um, I actually know people who have read the manuscript who've said it's not a werewolf novel. It's kind of a weird mystery novel, be that as it may. So did John Steinbeck want to write for Weird Tales? Yeah, maybe he really did. But then again, maybe he really didn't. Um, and now I've, I've flown off the handle so much that I can't even remember what the question was that she just asked. Well, it's um, I guess the brain of a question has been going through my mind for some time. Um uh, do you think that um, Robert, Robert Johnson was kind of an embellisher about his life? There seems to be some things that just don't mesh, you know, and um, I was just wondering if you thought like he embellished some of the things, you know, like receiving a letter from Lovecraft, and but he doesn't have a letter to prove, you know, that right. Lovecraft wrote to him and stuff like that. Right. Um, now, and, you know, this is um, S.T. Joshi in the introduction to Far Below and Other Weird Stories does get into this. And I've read this stuff elsewhere. Um, at the very most, at, at the most basic level, when people who have done the research through birth and death records, through um, census records, try to corroborate some of the stuff that Johnson said in his biographical pieces with the actual dates, there's a lot of variance there. It's hard to tell. Now, a lot of the stuff that Johnson was writing, he was writing many, many years after some of these things happened. You would think a guy would know what his own birth date is, obviously, but, you know, in the Lovecraft field, we have the famous case of, you know, Frank Long, who used to kind of dance around, uh, I think, a, a two-year span of dates for when he was actually born. So it's not that uncommon. Um, I do think that, you know, if he didn't have a Lovecraft letter as he claimed Lovecraft wrote to him, I have to say 
I like his, I like the story Lead Soldiers, which is the one that he said Lovecraft kind of wrote uh, uh, an admiring letter about. Uh, it doesn't strike me that that story would have struck Lovecraft um, as a letter to write or, or as a story to write a letter about to the author. Um, now, having said that, of course, I have read stories and weird tales that were not as good as Lead Soldiers by other writers. Uh, Lovecraft was, if he knew anything about Johnson, if he knew that Johnson was a younger writer, as we all know, Lovecraft was incredibly generous towards young writers, giving them encouragement, uh, giving them a leg up where he could. So maybe Lovecraft wrote that letter, maybe he didn't. I do know that there is some some of the things that are presented as factual evidence in or or as facts in uh, Johnson's memoirs, they're a little bit off as they would be in recollection thirty or forty years after uh, Johnson was experiencing them. He gets a couple of magazine titles wrong. He gets a couple of uh, editors' attributions for their work on magazines wrong. Um, I also don't discount the fact that Robert Barber Johnson was a press agent for a traveling circus. I would love to see some of the broadsides that he wrote and had published promoting, you know, the greatest show on earth coming to your town. Um, I'm sure there was a lot of embellishment, a lot of exaggeration, as you would expect of any kind of promotional work of that sort. Um, and I backtrack for two seconds on that to say the astonishing thing about Johnson's uh, uh, circus-themed fiction when you read it, um, whether or not all of the history that he is relating in those stories about the circus life and about circus history is true. He sure as heck makes it sound like it. So on the one hand, I'm sure he was operating from a, a base of reality, but exaggeration was to a certain extent part of his professional life as a circus promoter. Um, and just, you know, the traveling circus life in general. Um, it's hard to say that he did it deliberately. I'll throw you out another example in the Lovecraft field. Uh, Frank Belt, Matt Long's H.P. Lovecraft dreamer on the night side, okay? That got a bit of history wrong. Uh, some of it as best I no, got corrected before the book got into print. But this was not an authoritative biography that Frank was writing about his good friend H.P. Lovecraft. It was a memoir, and it was shaped by memories that he had of Lovecraft, the emotions and the fondness that he had for Lovecraft are unquestionable. But the factual details sometimes don't add up. And you just say, you know, this guy was writing this decades after these experiences. Of course, he's going to get them wrong. 
So, you know, again, circling back to your question, was there intentional embellishment by Johnson? Quite possibly. But I think if you remember who he was writing these essays for, he knew he was not writing for, you know, a major magazine. He wasn't writing for, he wasn't placing these in Esquire or the Saturday Evening Post. He was writing memoirs for a select group of readers, which was the weird fiction community. And I don't think it was a self-aggrandizing type of embellishment. I think just as he was remember it, remembering it, he was writing, you know, if we had a manuscript of the essays he wrote recalling his life, I bet that he just churned them out on a typewriter and probably never even looked back and edited them. So, you know, they stand as they stand and you just, again, have to take them with a grain of salt if you realize there are parts of them that are not factually correct. But, you know, here was a, here was a guy who just loved the weird fiction field, loved that he was embedded in it and that love and that just enthusiasm might have taken him a little bit to the fringes of the truth. And on that note, I wanted to continue on about Far Below because it was you know, being rated as like, you know, the best weird fiction, you know, story ever written. Did that actually appear in a story, you know, say, I mean, a magazine saying it was the best ever written? You know, Not that I know of. Now, again, this is where it gets a little wobbly. We do have it on authority from Johnson. And again, this is, you know, very conditional sort of thing. I haven't done as much digging through my issues of weird tales as I should, but the claim is that Dorothy McElwraith said this in 1953, okay? At 1953, at that point, Weird Tales has got one more year to go, and it's, to put it bluntly, it's sucking wind. At that time, as I recall, the, the Weird Tales letter column, the Eerie, I don't believe existed anymore. I don't think they were publishing it. That is the sort of statement that would have probably appeared in the Eerie. I'm trying to remember if there was if if McElwraith was even contributing um, editorial comments at the very beginning. Um, early in Weird Tales' existence, part uh, 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 an attraction that was in the magazine to engage fan enthusiasm. They did ask readers to send in you know, rate each issue's stories, pick the top three stories. And again, if Johnson was embellishing, perhaps he was remembering that Weird Tales in its golden years, the readers were regularly asked to rank these stories. And, you know, he may have been superimposing that over what was said to him about Far Below. Honestly, I don't even know why McElwraith would have said that to Johnson in 53, but for the fact that Johnson was probably still sending stories to the magazine. I believe at least one story was accepted and the magazine folded before McElwraith could publish it. 
So maybe in private correspondence that was said. I myself have, and, and again, this could just be a shortcoming on my part. I have not seen anything outside of Johnson's claim or the echo of that claim by others in other sources that in fact, readers claimed that Far Below was the best story ever published in Weird Tales. So basically no comment then. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's put it this way. I, I, have no, I have no evidence to contradict Johnson. And maybe that was part of his technique, you know? <laughs> <laughs> they seem to be people they were embellishments they were like kind of like small ones where it was kind of like you know they're in like a little bit of a gray area where like you, yeah. you, you they're not he didn't do anything outlandish you know he didn't say like you know him and lovecraft you know had tea you know every wednesday or something like that you know right although if you think about it i mean it's interesting because it does raise a certain question uh or a number of questions to say it in 1953, that's 14 years after Far Below was published. I'm sure there were dedicated readers of Weird Tales who began supporting it in the 1920s and stuck with the magazine into the 50s. But the perception is, you know, a 31 plus year run of the magazine, you probably had a very different reader base for the magazine after 1940, when McElwraith takes over from editor Farnsworth Wright. So on the one hand, you say, if readers are making this judgment, how much of the full Weird Tales legacy had they read? If Johnson is correct in saying that readers voted his story the best ever in Weird Tales, um, <laughs> That's sort of saying that he did better than H.P. Lovecraft did with readers. So, you know, you get into this really weird area where you can say, well, you know, it's kind of Freudian. You got to kill your dad in order to become the person you want to be in life. And, you know, so in a way to, for him to say that his story was voted the most popular is to say that his story was voted to be even more popular than Lovecraft's stories. This is where I think we begin to question the authority of that statement. And with no other evidence to support it or dispute it, I think we just kind of leave that one hanging in the air. You know, he was kind of like, almost like, you know, like a like apologetic about it. You know, it was like, it got voted the best story. I didn't think it deserved that, but you know, that's what people voted, you know. Right. He's so humble, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like, I don't deserve that honor, you know. But, <laughs> but I will gladly shoulder that burden. And would you consider his Silver Coffin a, a Lovecraft influence story as well? Um, I believe that they have likened that possibly to the Shunned House. Um, I just went through it recently. I was not as struck by Lovecraft cadences in that story as I was between mice, again, being uh, uh, sort of riffing on the rats in the walls and far below riffing on uh, um, Pickman's model. Um, I did not really uh, uh, pick up that much, but if you ask that question, you probably have something up your sleeve. 
No, I just came across where people were saying, you know, that it was like it, was, it reminded them of the shunned house, you know, the vampire versus science, you know, mm -hmm. type of story. And uh, I, my big impression was that it, just the way it was written, it almost felt like it would make a really good radio drama. No, it would, as I think a lot of Johnson's stories would. I mean, I'll address, I'll address the idea of what you said about the shunned house, because I've read that too. Um, it's kind of interesting. Uh, the vampire in the silver coffin is more blatantly a what we would think of as a traditional vampire. As we know, in the shunned house, you're thinking about the entity that is found in the basement as, you know, you're not thinking in terms of traditional vampire. And you know, maybe Lovecraft was consciously trying to distance himself from vampire fiction. Maybe this was just the case of he came up with an entity that people later on said, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I can kind of, you know, see that being the equivalent of it. I've seen the shunned house actually picked up for inclusion in vampire anthologies. As to the Silver Coffin making a good radio drama, I agree. I actually think a lot of Johnson's work would work well on radio. Part of it is because uh, if you go back through the stories, um, not all of them, but a lot of them, they are, and again, now I don't, not never having adapted, you know, having heard on the radio, never having adapted anything for the radio, I don't know how this would work. At the core of a lot of Johnson's stories is what I would call a dramatic monologue, okay? It's largely a character talking to another character. It's sort of like in Pickman's model. It is a narrator talking to a friend who is out of the picture frame and relating this series of discoveries that are, you know, a cumulative horror building to a climax. That would probably work very well in a radio medium. You don't have a lot of scene setting that is not actually spoken directly to the reader. The atmosphere is not that well developed. It is really one character telling another character about this, you know, terrifying horror that he knows about and uh, is saying it almost in a form of a warning. Now, radio dramas probably don't work well if it's just one character talking. You probably need more than one character talking. But I do think that Johnson's stories would lend themselves to that. Um, throw in a few good creepy sound effects and boom, you know. And uh, there was one of his little stories where it was Lupa. I guess it's this female werewolf story. Yes. <laughs> And um, I, I came across a note where Johnson said he could a nude scene in the story, hoping to make it for the cover of Weird Tales. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. Lupa, hold on. Let me see. I just want to get the date. Lupa. Jan okay. Tales, January 41. Yeah, so this is kind of interesting. Um... That's right on, that's an, an, act, uh, an interesting interval for Weird Tales. Uh, now, I believe that story was bought by Farnsworth Wright. 
um, who again, uh, really gave up the editorial reins in 1940. Uh, by the time that story was published, Dorothy McElwraith was editing the magazine. Now, yes, uh, back in the Farnsworth Wright days when Margaret Brundage was putting those scantily clad women on the cover of the magazine, um, Johnson wouldn't have been the first writer who kind of tipped to the idea that, uh, wow, this might get me the cover image. I'm sure that Seabury Quinn did that a lot. Uh, if you go through some of the Jules de Grandin stories, there are one or two risque scenes in those stories. And it seems to me almost like these were passages that were making a bid to get a, a kind of steamy cover for the magazine. Brundage was no longer doing that work. Uh, at that point, I would have to check sources again to find out when her last cover was. And really, she was the one who was notorious for those Weird Tales covers that, uh, you know, might have necessitated a, a, a brown paper bag treatment at the newsstand. Um, by the time Lupa appeared, the really sort of sexy covers, really, that that age was passed for the magazine. So again, possibly, um, if he put in a nude scene to try and get something like that, Smart marketing, that's all I can say. Yeah, it's just, just poor timing on his part for him. Yes. <laughs> and then uh, another story, Strange Case of Monica Lilith. Very interesting. I, 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 I liked it overall, but it's, it didn't really have really much of a plot to it. Yeah, it didn't. And I have a theory about that story. Oh, he has theories about all of these stories. <laughs> I just reread... Monica Lilith, uh, which I believe Doc Lowndes did in the Magazine of Horror. As I was reading the story, and I don't want to, you know, don't want to, you know, spoiler alerts, but the idea of this little creature living with a bigger, you know, living in the world of bigger creatures who had a home that was outfitted specifically with with items specifically for that creature i was trying something just kept going off in my head what 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 story is this um this this is ringing a bell for me and i have absolutely nothing to back up this supposition but i remember henry s whitehead's story cassius which um if you've read it you know it's about a creature that is an unborn twin that was attached to the twin who lives. It was surgically excised and it develops a life of its own to the extent um, that it is living in its own little self-made home. It's almost like a hermit crab, um, but it has certain necessities within its home and it scuttles about unseen by people. Um, that is how it manages to survive. It leaves traces, but nobody really gets to see it until the end of the story when, um, of course, it's caught by an animal. And uh, again, I've just ruined the story for anybody who's not read it um, and is killed. But in any event, did Johnson read 
Henry S. Whitehead's story. Perhaps um, his story is vastly different from that. His story is about a witch and her familiar, and yet there's a certain sense of plotting that does seem to echo Whitehead's. So again, I could be totally off base about that, but when I was reading it, I just I just felt like, you know, where have I seen this before? Where have I been when I read this story before? I had read Cassius and I forgot about that. There is some similarities. It reminds me of a more modern movie, Basket Case. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> who is that? Frank Henenlotter who did that one? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, there was a one of his other one of his last, I guess, fiction works that we know of is The Life After Death of Mr. Thaddeus Ward. Uh, yes. We thought was really funny. No, that one is there is a dash of humor in that. And again, when I was reacquainting myself with that, I thought, you know, if Johnson was writing during the EC Comics era, this would have been a great comic strip scenario because it's the whole idea of a guy <laughs> coming back from the dead to wreak his revenge and <laughs> yeah his his form crawling along along the ground under cover of night is mistaken for an alligator uh when they finally find his corpse after he's tracked down and he has exacted his revenge you know, his mode of motivation getting along the ground has tattered not only his clothes, but his body. <laughs> and, you know, you can just see that this would have been a great one. You, you can see somebody like Wally Wood just drawing this guy crawling out of the funeral home and just going along the ground and, you know, cartoon balloons above his head. Yes, I am coming to get you. I have to move slow because my legs are breaking off, but I'm coming to get you. It's that sort of thing. And I have, I strongly, strongly doubt that Johnson was familiar with that comic book tradition. Um, who knows, he might've run across some of the more lurid comics of that era in his travels, but um it's one of the more grotesque stories that he wrote, but at the same time, it's got a dash of humor in it that has you kind of chuckling as you're turning the pages. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed that one. And then he went, like, I guess, like really in the left field and had the magic park. You know, his book. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, that was, again, now the magic park was his nonfiction book, as best everybody knows. It's the only book that he wrote. Um, and that was his tribute to Golden Gate Park. Um, it was his tribute, I think, to a lot of the culture um, that he was part of when he was living on the West Coast. You know, it's it's about as close to a trade memoir as you get, even though it's not a memoir about him. It's more about a place that is historyed and a place for which he seemed to have a great fondness. And then I call this one the jinx story. He says he wrote a story that seemed like every time he tried to get it published, something happened to the publisher. And yeah. <laughs> do you know what this jinx story is? Um, I don't. Um, 
By now, what was it? One of the things that happened was an agent had it and and the agent in the manuscript got blown up in the blitz or something like that. I'm not familiar with that story. I don't know if it remains an unpublished one. One thing that I would uh, uh, key people to, and I kind of, uh, when I was, when I was uh, bouncing ideas off of ST for uh, Far Below and other weird stories, I did call attention to the fact that there is a story listed for Johnson on his uh, ISFDB page. And it appears, uh, it has a title that is rendered entirely in French. The, I, I do not speak French, so I don't know how to translate it. Uh, the word home is in it, which I assume means man. I was trying to see, can I relate this to any of the other stories of his published in English? And I really couldn't. That would be an interesting find if it could be tracked down because that is a story that I only know of in its French existence. Again, we would have to establish, you know, who did this? How did this get published there? Um, if in fact there was a story blown up with, with a British agent during the Blitz, well, then maybe a story of Johnson's got over to Europe. But that remains um, sort of a bibliographic mystery of his. I would encourage people to check it out, look it up. Let us know if this is a Robert Barber Johnson story that was never published stateside. I am unfamiliar with it, but it would obviously be an interesting find for his legacy. Yeah, that would be. And then he had an essay, uh, Charles Fort and a man named Thaler, Thayer, I say Thayer. Yeah, Tiffany Thayer. So this is interesting. I keep saying that a lot. Johnson, like a lot of other authors in the 20th century, a lot of, in particular, people in the weird fiction field, um, seems to have been a dedicated Fordian, uh, you know, disciple of, or I wouldn't say disciple, but he was intrigued by the writings of Charles Fort. And there were a lot of fantasy and science fiction writers in particular who were interested in Charles Fort. One of the more famous ones British writer Eric Frank Russell, who wrote um, several novels that used uh, Fordian themes, perhaps the most famous being Sinister Barrier, which was a lead novel for the magazine Unknown, published in 1939. The entire concept being that our world and all of the phenomena that happen in it are being controlled by a sort of uber race, not so much extraterrestrials as just sort of kind of like a super race. And we are sort of the mice in the maze of these people. Johnson does seem to have really liked Fort. He certainly seemed to be one of these people who was fascinated by weird accounts or accounts of weird phenomena, inexplicable phenomena reported in newspapers, which, you know, a lot of this was the foundation of Charles Fort's work. That essay, <laughs> it's, it's kind of a hit piece um, if you read it, because 
it sort of suggests that the chapter of the Charles Fort Society, and again, I am not a Fortian, there are other people who could advise uh, uh, much more intelligently on this. It seems to imply that Thayer was a guy who, you know, he got control of the society or of at least a chunk of the society. And if you disagreed with him, <clears throat> he sort of cut you. And it seems as though the chapter that Johnson was in was promoting ideas um, that Thayer didn't agree with, or at least was not promoting the ideas that Thayer was promulgating. And so Thayer just dissolved them, cast them aside. And um, this really shows his disapp uh, Johnson's disappointment and disdain for what he saw as uh, this concept and this organization that he subscribed to just getting mistreated by the guy who was now appointed the head of it. Now, did he get any like, you know, like backlash, you know, from Thayer or anybody, you know, over that essay? Not that I know of. Um, it's interesting. The, uh, the essay appeared in two places. Um, it appeared in what? Rotomagnetic Digest, I believe. And then... I have New Frontiers. Yes, New Frontiers. It was published later. So I don't think he got enough backlash that if he got any backlash, I don't think he got enough that he hesitated to have it reprinted and or, you know, reprinted in a revised state for a later magazine but yeah i i think you would have to go into the annals of the fortian society in order to track that down again fortian themes uh there are some people in in the weird and science fiction field who really kind of distance themselves from fort there are others who were big believers i just think that if you're going to find that information anywhere it's going to be in their writings and their journals um, I actually know some people, not, not, now you've planted a seed, I know some people uh, who do 40 in research, and it might be worth actually reaching out to them and saying, hey, Robert Barber Johnson wrote this piece. If you're not familiar with it, can you tell us, would there have been backlash against it? Just more if it was like an excommunicate or something from them. <laughs> you're planning on doing a second volume of some of his stories, his circus stories, aren't you? Yes, um, in fact, I am. And uh, I'm hoping uh, we'll be able to follow through. Joe Morey at Weird House expressed interest in the book. And I am very, very flattered by that because, um, of course, the stories are not weird. They are circus adventure stories. Johnson wrote 16 of these for the magazine Blue Book between 1948 and 1951. Um, apparently, uh, what I've read is that he was actually under contract uh, to write six stories per year for the magazine, for which he was paid handsomely in those days. He was paid uh, seven and a half cents a word. Blue Book was one of the better paying magazines at the time, which was a phenomenal sum compared to Weird Tales, which at that point, you know, for most of Weird Tales life was at best one cent per word, possibly 1.5 cents per word. The stories are very interesting. 
I have to say, as I'm going through them, I am attracted to them with a, with a very strong sense of nostalgia. Here is Johnson writing stories about the circus life, about circus animals, about experiences on, you know, traveling from town to town, the rigors of having to put up a big top, having to take care of all the animals. The detail is rather remarkable. Um, it is, the detail is astonishing when you compare it, these stories to his weird fiction, which in a lot of cases, you know, the stories could happen just about anywhere. Um, it's like I said, a lot of the stories, the weird stories are monologues. So the characters are not going to be getting off that much into setting a scene for you uh, that strongly. The circus stories are very different that way. They begin in 1948, and there is already this sort of nostalgia uh, um, that Johnson is, is, is running through the stories. There is this sense that this is a sort of life, a sort of entertainment, a facet of American popular culture, uh, you know, definitely American, although he does get all into the fact that, um, you know, there are European antecedents and there are parallel circuses going on in Europe, but you are getting the sense that the heyday of this life is passing. The very first story that he does is a story in which it's it's almost it's almost like you know reading the legend of John Henry. Um, a circus is coming to town. The old guy who does who runs the uh, gangs of circus horses who normally is that the, big pull hitch? The, hmm? is yeah. that the big hitch? Big hitch, and they're the ones who traditionally pulled the circus wagons. And you've got these guys who are in trucks. And they're like, no, 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 no. You, you have the horses do that. It's going to take forever. And, you know, they are like automation. They are like the industrial revolution displacing these uh, uh, traditional elements of this particular life. And then, of course, there is um, something at the end of the story that necessitates, you know, there's a flood that overwhelms where the circus tents have been pitched and only the horses can help draw it out. So there is this sense of a modern age is coming and is changing what is happening, but the old ways still have their merits. They still have value. The other thing that's interesting about the story is, and again, Johnson in his life, according to his biography, goes from being a promoter of circus, traveling circuses, to being an animal trainer. A lot of the stories turn on the idea of man and nature, good trainers, good superintendents of these animals versus the bad ones, the nasty ones, the cruel ones. And you have the good ones partnering with the animals and the and you know eventually having to save the bad ones from sure death because they're mistreating them it's kind of interesting because first of all there was nothing 
well, I'm going to qualify this. There was sort of nothing like this in Blue Book that I am familiar with at the time. Johnson really had his own landscape here, his own terrain that he could do what he wanted with. Um, there were different adventures of other sorts in Blue Book, but nobody was really writing from the traveling circus standpoint. At the same time, you kind of did have something interesting going on, which is that Johnson's stories are appearing in Blue Book uh, at the same time that William Lindsay Gresham, I mean, I just, I just made this connection recently. William Lindsay Gresham is writing stories about the carnival life slightly different traveling circus carnivals are different you know circuses were kind of promoted as wholesome entertainment family entertainment uh you know every town that they go to everybody's waiting in line to see all the animals carnivals were different carnivals were kind of seamy uh they were considered a little transgressive uh gresham of course winds up collecting these pieces in his book about Carnival Life, Monster Midway. And of course, he is the author of um, Nightmare Alley, which is like one of the most ferocious books about carnival life ever written. So it's kind of interesting. I mean, they are, they are in a couple of cases, they are appearing in the same magazine at the same time. But anyway, another reason why I bring up the circus aspect, which is interesting, is magazines, the pulp magazines are starting to go into transition at this period. Their heyday was up until World War II. After World, uh, World War II paper shortages had a huge impact on what magazines survived. After the war, pulp magazines were starting to get streamlined. A lot of them were dying. They were being replaced by other forms of entertainment, by television, by the rise of mass market paperbacks. Blue Book was interesting. Blue Book was a magazine that had begun in the early part of the 20th century. It was very popular. It was one of the longest lived pulp magazines. And it seems as though by the late 40s and early 50s, that magazine saw the handwriting on the wall. They were still publishing a lot of the same authors. Uh, they were publishing some of the new ones. It's really great to see a, a you know Robert Barbara Johnson story in a magazine where John D. McDonald's name is also in the table of contents. But what wound up happening with Blue Book, and you have to go for another few years, men's adventure magazines begin coming into vogue, okay? Um, there are a lot of reasons for that. You in particular see these magazines becoming popular um, in the mid-50s, post-Korean War, and the feeling was that, you know, everything from returning veterans from the war to uh, readers who had gotten their thrills in the pulps were still looking to get that jolt of interest, but men's magazines were becoming much more important. Uh, you know, thank you, Hugh Hefner and Playboy, for getting that out there without the pictures. That was what a lot of men's adventure magazines were doing. And I bring that up because one of the staples 
of the men's adventure magazines invariably were stories about man against nature. It was nature in the wild. It was, you know, the famous story, weasels ripped my flesh. Um, there were lots of stories about guys being put in situations where they had to go mano a mano with animals and you know maybe their their friends weren't so lucky they didn't escape but these guys did they lived to tell the tale in this kind of rip snorting account and johnson's stories his circus stories are more genteel but there's no getting around the fact that a big big element in them is the relationship of men and wild animals and I can't help but feel as I'm reading these stories, and undoubtedly I'll say something about this in, in, in my introduction to the book, is that this is sort of charting the transition. Whether or not the magazine's editors really kind of felt this was a natural bridge from adventure story, traditional adventure stories that had been in Blue Book to what was coming down the road, we don't know. But it's interesting to look at Johnson's circus stories in that context and say, you know, is it that big a leap to go from, I have to fight off a tiger that has escaped from its cage on a circus ground to, my God, I'm in the jungles of Burma and there is a tiger stalking me and I have to survive against it. So it's just a thought, but it's something that sticks in my mind enough that I think something needs to be said about that. Again, what I would also say, now we're gonna go with the 16 stories that appeared in Blue Book. Clearly Johnson had the circus bug in him long after Blue Book stories were no longer being published. He had two stories, as I said, in Short Story Magazine. And for all I know, those might've been stories that had originally been intended for Blue Book. Uh, they didn't get published until another seven or eight years after his last one for Blue Book. So I don't know what the connection is. Um, but a decade later, he has stories appearing in Mike Shane Mystery Magazine. He had five stories all set on circus grounds. And again, we're not gonna be reprinting these, but the really interesting thing about them, four of the five stories, and I don't know if this was a stipulation of the magazine and its editor, after the first story, he writes four stories that are united by a series detective, a series detective by the name of Bull Costello, Bull Costello is a so-called circus cop. He's seven, close to seven feet tall, as they say, close to 300 pounds. He's a guy who used to regularly travel with circuses or get called into circuses when there was some sort of mishap and he had to investigate. Now, I know that when... Johnson was writing for pulp magazines like Dime Detective. I don't know if he was ever encouraged to do this. Uh, Dime Detective back in the 30s was really big on the concept of its writers 
having series characters. A series character, when that writer appeared in the magazine, was something of a guarantee that that writer's fans would seek out that issue of the magazine and buy it if they like previous adventures by that character. Uh, Mike Shane Mystery Magazine obviously is headed by a, 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 you know, a lead story every issue featuring the detective Mike Shane, but it seems that Johnson also decided that it was a good hook for his stories to have this series detective. And what I find interesting, there is a kind of parallel in the weird fiction field of a sort. If any of you are familiar with Joseph Payne Brennan's fiction and the short stories that he wrote featuring uh, a his series detective named Lucius Leffing, when Brennan begins writing these stories, Lucius Leffing is almost a psychic detective. The cases he gets involved in have a definite weird angle. They have supernatural elements in them. That persists through about the first six stories in the series. And Brennan is writing these in the early 50s, about the time that Weird Tales is getting ready to bite the dust. Um, in fact, he actually published, I think, at least one of these stories in his own small press magazine, Macabre. Um, he might have published more of them. What's interesting is come the mid-1950s, Brennan continues writing the Lucius Leffing stories, but suddenly the weird element is no longer there, uh, in part because the weird market is no longer there. Suddenly, Leffing becomes a kind of old-fashioned detective with old-fashioned detective methods that still work in the 20th century, and he is placing these stories in Alfred Hitchcock's mystery magazine, Ellery Queen's. I think he placed one in Ellery Queen. He may have placed some in Mike Shane. So it's it's sort of interesting. I just I find a parallel in the idea that Johnson, a former weird fiction writer, devised this series character late in life for these stories. I'm going back meticulously through the Blue Book stories just to make sure that there's no evidence of, of you know, a similar series character. But there does seem to be this intention on Johnson's part, as there was on Joseph Payne Brennan's part, to cater to what the market wanted at the time. These were guys who were both reared writing weird fiction, and now they're writing straight detective stories. In Johnson's case, they're not straight detective stories because they partake of this circus life setting that he had been writing about all, already for numerous stories. Um, it's just an interesting parallel, and it's kind of an interesting commentary on maybe what a lot of other weird fiction writers were doing in order to keep their hand in the game, in order to sell stories. Um, they were translating their work over to the mystery detective field. So are you planning on like printing those up into a third volume or anything like that? I would love to do it. Um, all that I would say is they're published late enough that um, we'd have to do some scrupulous copyright checking. <laughs>
It's like, uh, who would own the copyright to them? Would they be the magazine publisher or would they go to Johnson? You know, I'm not quite sure how Mike Shane handled it. Uh, various magazines in the way back when the authors basically turned their copyright over to the magazine. It's not entirely clear. I know that like in the science fiction field, John W. Campbell, who edited Astounding Science Fiction, you know, probably the most famous science fiction magazine of its era, the, the home of golden age science fiction. He kept very tight edit editorial control of the stories to the extent that when some stories wound up getting reprinted as second serial uh, versions, he was not terribly happy with it. This is a huge problem, and it's not something that I really want to, uh, you know, get into too deeply here. But it is something that is pertinent to the pulp magazines. It is pertinent to pulp magazines that Johnson and others contributed to, which is the farther and farther we get from the era, okay? You know, we know right now up until, uh, what is it at this point, 1990 or 1927, all of those stories are in the public domain. So the copyright of the stories, the uh, whether it was owned by the magazine, whether it was owned by the author, it doesn't matter anymore. These are in the public domain. As you get farther along, it gets to be more and more problematic based on copyright law. And I won't go into the boring details of that, except to say um, it depends on whether copyrights were ever renewed. Um, it depends on the death date of the author. It depends on how rigorously the magazines that the stories appeared in uh, controlled copyright. Mike Shane, of course, I, I don't think it's publishing anymore. I can't remember when it discontinued, but that was pretty far into the modern copyright era. And it's the sort of thing where if you want to you know, cross your T's and dot your I's, you definitely go and you look and you see what the copyright status would be, what the copyright status through the magazine would be. So again, that's another long-winded response to your question of, it's only five stories from Mike Shane. They're fun. Uh, they're as much fun um, as the Blue Book stories, maybe even more fun because they're a little more modern. Um, but yeah, maybe that's another book for another time. If we ever find the you know, unpublished papers of Robert Barber Johnson, those will be the anchor for that volume. I, I tracked down a few of his circus stories uh, through Blue Book, and I, I noticed there was like, you know, every story had basically had a theme of an animal. Yeah. They focused on one animal, you know, for the stories. Yeah. Um, you know, camels, elephants. He loved elephants, um, tigers, lions. Um, the really interesting thing, there is an interesting kind of... <laughs> Boy, you guys pushed a button here. Uh, <laughs> there is an interesting sidebar here. Um, perhaps because he wanted to work a slightly different angle into the stories, perhaps because of the direction the magazine was going in, there are a couple of the circus stories that are not set in mid-20th century America. Johnson relates a lot of circus history. I mean, again, the guy must have, you know, whether he just absorbed this by traveling with the shows or whether he was extremely well read up on it, I don't know. But he dispenses a lot of 
history about circuses through the stories. And there are a couple of historical circus stories in the mix. There's one he liked to promote the idea that I don't know if it was the first circus elephant in the United States, but apparently there was some involvement with George Washington. And so you have one of his circus stories set during the Revolutionary War era. And the interesting thing about this, in addition to the fact that it was quite a departure from the contemporary circus stories, at the time, Blue Book is publishing cover art by an artist named Herbert Morton Stoops. And Stoops became very renowned as an artist of historical treatments. He has covers that, re that reflect Revolutionary War incidents, covers that reflect the settling of the American West. And he, I mean, his work was identifying the cover of that magazine in the same at that time in the same way perhaps that Margaret Brundage uh, her work identified weird tales in her era and so as a popular cover artist for Blue Book you do ask yourself was Johnson encouraged to work a, a historical angle into some of these stories or just like he put a nude scene in Lupa in the hope of getting the cover of that Weird Tales issue, did he think, hmm, if I put a historical element in this circus story, maybe I'll get the cover of that issue of Blue Book? We might not know. You never know. Uh, there are a lot of illustrations, that really good illustrations for his stories. Uh, would, you, would, you, would you like to have those illustrations in the, the circus stories for your reprints? Um, I would. Uh, I don't know that that's going to happen. One thing I can tell you, again, if you consider I mean, the, the Blue Book ones, if you've seen the Blue Book circus stories, they really had some very good interior illustrations. They were usually two color. Um, one of the problems that I could see with them being is that if you're not working off of you know, an original cover or, or, or an original illustration proof, um, I bet the artwork would not reproduce that well. Um, it would be a lot of fun to actually see them because I think they add a lot of character to the stories and they were done by artists who clear, <laughs> who, you know, as was not always the case with Weird Tales, they had actually read the stories and the art actually reflects what is going on in the stories themselves. I think the treatment that we're going to be looking at for the circus stories is going to be not unlike what we have in Far Below. Um, they didn't reproduce any of the interior art from Weird Tales for that. And speaking as somebody who has worked with old-time pulp art and has seen it reproduced in, in later anthologies and collections, probably just as well because bad reproduction of the artwork won't serve the purpose that it should but boy it would be fun to have an illustrated book it would be great to have those jumping back to robert johnson's life i guess in his later life he moved to salinas california uh do we know why he moved there not sure uh maybe he was chasing steinbeck <laughs> you know his good buddy john 
Um, not sure. He's he's you know he's kind of hazy when he releases biographical details. Well, I should say a few things. The biographical details that I have read from accounts, ST sites, um, there is a, um, a blog site that I would encourage people who are interested in Johnson to go to. Hold on. Let's give credit where credit is due. Um, Joshua Blue, uh, B-U-H-S. Um, his website is given on page seven of Far Below and Other Weird Stories, and ST attributes a lot of the biographical information in his introduction to that website. Joshua, if I can say his, his do his first name, is the guy who went and looked at records. Where was Johnson at this particular time? When was he born? What does the census say? What does it say about his parents? He has a lot of the factual details, but he doesn't get into what Johnson was doing in those years, why he moved to Salinas. In fact, it's not clear exactly what Johnson was doing in order to make a living. Um, he was apparently doing writing. He did have experience as a journalist. He was also a painter. Um, I believe several of his paintings still exist. And, you know, I've not, I've not looked diligently, but perhaps they're in West Coast museums somewhere. But again, he does seem to have had an itinerant life. When he talks about himself, the facts he gives through his own biography, they're always framed in the context, or not always, but they are usually framed in the context of the stories he was writing and where he was. So he talks about how, you know, he was trying to sell to Weird Tales when he first ran across the magazine. He talks about the circus stories as a natural outcome of his circus experience. It just seems that he's very scanty on details about his life when it comes to when he was doing stuff that was not writing, and in particular, when it was not weird fiction writing. So again, that's a long-winded response to saying to you, I am not sure why he moved to Salinas. Uh, his obituary has been impossible to find as well. Yeah, which it's interesting because if his obituary is impossible to find, again, his death date has been reported. So, <laughs> you know, we're hoping you know, it would be really nice to find an obituary that could corroborate that. Um, not even sure where he was living at the time that he died. I think he was still on the West Coast. Um, if you know otherwise, please correct me. But um, really, I kind of feel like after the piece that Johnson did for Weird Tales 50 in the early 70s, he kind of disappears. And just not that much that I have been able to find about what he was doing in the 10 to 15 years between that piece's appearance and uh uh you know when his death is reported that's it seems kind of odd it's almost like he had almost a complete control of the narrative of his life you know for the public you know even to his death you know right. so, you know we know less about him today i guess than we did back then <laughs> at a certain point it gets hard to control the details of your own death <laughs> 
All right. You promised you were going to teach us how to pronounce your name. And <laughs> Okay. So what I would say is it helps if you've got the spelling of the name in front of you. And the reason why I say that is because invariably when people ask me, how do you pronounce your name? And I encourage them to try it out phonetically. They actually come up with a sound that is closer to the Polish pronunciation. In Polish, I would be Stefan Ziemianowicz. So you run that D-Z-I-E-M together as Ziem. You put the accent on the I-A, Ziemianowicz. And, you know, W-I-C-Z in Slavic being pronounced Vich. I'm sure that somebody who is native to Poland will probably send up alarms and say, that guy doesn't even know how to pronounce his own name. But in any event, this is how my grandparents pronounced the name. And to be perfectly honest with you, we have no idea how the American pronunciation of Zemianowicz came about as Jemanowicz. My wife always loves to tell people that when they see my name, they see that last name and they ask me, how do you pronounce that? I say, Kennedy. <laughs> nice, nice. There's always there's always a beat, and then they smile and realize I'm joking. So, <laughs> yeah. All right, we'll jump to a different subject here. In our last episode with Robert Price, David, you had mentioned about a play by Edmund Wilson, uh, where he may have apologized for his criticism against H.P. Lovecraft. And uh, you thought it was a little play called Little Blue Light, a play in three acts. And I tracked down the, uh, the book or a book version of the play. It's, it's set in a not remote future. I did a little research, couldn't find anything referencing directly to Lovecraft by name. But however, there's a character named Gansvort von Gandersmein. Now, how's that for a name? Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> who has some very Lovecraftian qualities. He was a writer of gruesome tales who had a followers and created a monster god came, named Shidnets Slimy. And Gandersmine said Shidnets Slimy is a simple force that blights and kills the cruelest, the, he's the cruelest thing that exists. He later confessed the name of the monster god came from a corruption of his true name spelled backwards, Miles Stanish. Stanish. Uh, one character described his followers as armchair romantics and second-rate pansies, even calling them slaves. Uh, in fact, the title of the play is description of Shid Nef's slimy is a little blue light. I've got to find that this play has ever been performed, and I've not read it all the way through. I've only skimmed it, so I don't know exactly uh, what this play is all about and how you know he's making what his statement about Lovecraft or anything like that. Uh, but I would like to read it, sit down and just read it one day. Maybe get a few people perform it for me. <laughs> one of the Lovecraft element I kind of like uh, picked out from him is that his this play is set, is set in his fictional land of Hecate County, uh, where Wilson set a lot of his stories. Um, so he wasn't so he wasn't against creating his own universe like Lovecraft, you know, was, was known for his doing as well. In his memoirs of Hecate County. Uh, these copies were seized by the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice from bookstores and libraries. The Supreme Court upheld the ban and it was no longer published in the United States or even Australia, but you can still read it in Britain. 
the reason for the censorship revolved around a novella called The Princess with the Golden Hair by a man who falls in love with two married women. A description of women's sexual parts was considered obscene. He revised the story in 1959 and it can be safely published again and sold. Uh, Lovecraft may have put his may have put his influence on it, you know, objecting to a lot of the sex in the story, something like that. Yeah. And anyway, David Richard and Mr. Jamanowitz, I see the stars are longer right. We must cease all discussions until they align again next month. 30 plus minutes of HP Lovecraft is sponsored by the Silver Coffin. We pawned at Crazy Rays. <laughs> this podcast is created in association with LovecraftPod.com and the Logan Speculative Fiction Group with a little help from Lone County Public Library and the great old ones. Special thanks to Katie Tysons for being the boss hostler and Joshua Dukes for the nuclear pasta. Until we meet again, may you avoid Princess Cthulhu and her weird fiction stories. <laughs>